0: Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. As usual, if you want to see the work associated with this this episode, you can check it out on the website onstrategyshowcase.com. We talked today with Vanessa McGuinness from Mother in London. She's a strategy director on the KFC business for the UK and Ireland, and also Jack Hinchliffe, who is marketing lead on the client side uh, for KFC UK and Ireland. And uh, we have a um, an ambitious episode today. Uh, like most people, I had heard of the FCK work. The cat that had come out of Mother London, which was a reaction to a logistics problem, that supply chain problem that KFC had had in the UK and Ireland. And it basically resulted in the entire, or like I think, 85% of the franchise shutting down, which is just amazing to think about. And so it became this, this supply chain crisis. And there was some brilliant work done by Mother and the client as a response to that. And that's what was what initially drew me to this. But as I began to look into it a little bit more, I realized that following on the heels of that was a kind of a broader story about how, for example, they tried to launch a uh, new fries and uh, some initial some challenges that they sort of considered might happen as a result of that. And then, of course, there was the pandemic and the response that they had and within that. And they had a campaign running. Uh, during the just prior to the pandemic, which was uh, finger licking good, which literally showed people licking their fingers. So they had to come up with a very uh, creative solution and take that campaign off air while they developed an alternative. And it was ambitious because I ended up kind of doing an episode where I wanted to try and address, um, literally four campaigns in one episode. And um, and I apologize because I wasn't able to give each of these campaigns the level of depth that I might otherwise have done. We literally could have done four separate episodes. But I do think what we got out of this, even though I had to edit some of it down, was we really get a good sense of the way this client and mother, uh, London, actually uh, thinks about the brand and thinks about reacting to uh, challenging situations or even crisis. And in in essence, it's about really their commitment to breaking patterns in marketing assumptions that everything that we are going to hear about today, whether you've heard of the FCK work that they did around the chicken crisis, or you've heard about their reaction in the pandemic, you can see that they took a an a unexpected approach that paid off big time. So this is Nessa McGinnis and Jack Hinchcliffe for KFC in the UK and Ireland. Enjoy. So welcome, Jack. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks for taking time today.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here, I guess.
0: And Nessa uh, McGinnis, who actually, uh, you know, I grew up, as many people know, I, I grew up in, in Dublin. I grew up in a town called stillorgan and uh, Nessa grew up uh, maybe a mile and a half away. We've, we've, we don't know each other, uh, uh, but uh, you grew up in Black Rock, right, Nessa?
2: I did, yeah. Um, ho- home of James Joyce at one point.
0: There you go. Not uh, that I'm
2: I'm claiming any connection.
0: Yeah, and I spent many, many time, many uh, lost youthful days um, fishing down on Black Rock when I was a kid. I'd ride my bike down every Saturday morning. But enough about that. (laughs) So, it's great to have you both on because um, there's a a great story to unpack here as we look at KFC. Uh, We've done an interview with Widen and Kennedy in the U.S. on KFC and the rebirth of the colonel. Which was a very popular episode, and the work was was um, was terrific. Uh, a number of years back, that was, and um, one of the things that's unique about KFC is its choice to sort of deploy its brand locally. It's it really allows different regions and localities to uh, sort of customize the expression of the brand on a local basis. Um, so, for people who are who are kind of thinking, well, why why couldn't there be a global campaign? Uh, like the uh the work that came out of widen it's just it's just a kind of kfc is at different growth levels and different markets it's known very in, differently in different markets right so it sort of needs to be customized on a on a local level nessa
2: yeah that's true and and actually we were big fans of the widen's work when we came onto the account so naturally looking at the kernel and what role he could play was something we had considered but the, the category was in quite a different place from a food perspective in the UK, and it had undergone quite a lot of changes in recent years. So there used to be quite a clear line between traditional QSR and other kinds of restaurants. Uh, but there'd been a massive expansion in the fast casual space and there were all of these hipster burger places and posh fried chicken places coming out Um, and it really blurred the lines and it just meant that KFC was fighting competition on all sides so we had premium players we had our usual competition and then we had lots of local independent chicken shops and what we found in the research was it wasn't enough anymore in our market to be just tasty and convenient and good value which would have been the traditional markers of a player in this space um, people were saying that they they wanted something more and, and they described it as this wrapping of good. And that could come from any. could be an authenticity story. It could be craft and how the food was made. It could be their social values. Um, but what we had found in the UK was that unfortunately for KFC, it had fallen behind all of those food trends. So it was seen as a little bit outdated, a little bit corporate. The food wasn't seen as um, comparable to some of its closest competitors. And the metaphor they used to describe the brand was of a divorced middle-aged man sitting on the couch in front of the TV. So it was the, the exact opposite of where we <laughs> wanted to be.
0: With a bucket of chicken.
2: With a bucket of chicken, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we kind of had this mission, which was to modernise the brand and to put, you know, good into our brand image, and also to do it as fast as we could because we were already late to the party and we were catching up with competitors. So we are in, in a very different place in the UK market to America where you already had quite a loved and well-known brand. We were we were coming, you know, we were, we had fallen behind and we needed to catch up.
0: So Jack, what do you remember about that time? This was in 2016 when Mother London uh, got the account. What do you what was happening from a business perspective back then?
1: So we I mean like back in 2016 we we knew that we had had a challenge um, to face into something to address. And we thought that we had a communications challenge. What we, what we thought was that we needed to refresh our advertising, be more kind of like relevant, um, purely when it came to communications. But when we did this research that um, that Nessa's referenced, what we came to understand is that we actually had a relevance issue in the UK market. Um, and, Although advertising and communications could play could play part of the role in resolving that and um, and helping us um, kind of continue to grow and be culturally relevant to the UK market, it actually went much deeper. Um, and this mission to modernise the brand to put good back into finger licking good actually permeated through every facet of our organization. So that could be restaurant design through to sourcing strategy, through to menu. So although we clearly had a big opportunity in communications, this idea of um, modernizing the brand actually spoke across all facets of, of the brand.
0: So, um, so NASA 2016, there's a pitch, uh, or at least there's a client ask. So um, what is the ask that they come to you with?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it was a pitch. And they came to us with all of this research explaining the issues that the brand had. And, you know, it was pretty simple. It was Sol- solve the problem and it was actually a great brief because if they come with a brand that was in great shape and a comms approach that was really working all you can do is mess around the edges with it whereas you know the, the brief was start again you know nothing's out of bounds we want you to come out completely fresh what we're doing at the moment isn't helping us tackle our problems um, and, and we need to be kind of revolutionary. So it was a fantastic brief, really motivating. And from, and from the very start in the agency, there was a huge amount of excitement working on it. There was a lot of energy um, for us. And quite quickly, we got to a tone and um, a kind of brand world, as we call it, which felt right um and we had a strategy that was rooted really in the values of the colonel because we did want it to be we didn't want to pluck it out of nowhere it was something that was authentic and kfc have a really strong culture which you know some people on the outside aren't as close to aren't aware of and it all stems from you know the colonel himself and his spirit and and some of the things he said And, and that was just kind of the sprinkling of truth that that grew into a much bigger strategy. Um, But it was all about looking forward as well. So even though we delved into the brand in the past, the campaigns that we created were all about moving into the future and living in this new food world and bringing new customers into brand as well, because we had to grow penetration. And that was our big um, marketing name.
0: Was there there value um, in the fact that the brand was I'm assuming it was thought of as an American brand. And, and if I'm right in that, was there value in certain aspects of that sort of Americana that that the Colonel represented or that that period of time that he seemed to originate from? Do you want to take a shot at that, Jack or, or Nessa? whomever?
1: I'm happy to kick off there. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of, you know, we obviously have a rich um, American heritage as a brand. Um, but over time in the UK, that's not necessarily top of mind. It's not it's not on the tip of the tongue of the um, the UK consumer. Um, and and so it sits it sits a little bit sort of further back in the head. It's not something that's quite as immediate. And one of the things that Mother London did in their response to pitch was actually very neatly and articulately find a way to actually speak to that heritage, that Southern heritage, which is all about hospitality and values and authenticity, the roots um, that sit in the, in the brand with modern Britain today, and find a way to incorporate both of those things together, our, our, our heritage and, and, like, and who the brand is in British culture today and bring both of those together.
0: So Nessa, when you look at when you look at when you're when you're kind of facing this issue of relevance, creating relevance, um, what do you are you looking at creating relevance to a younger target? Uh, was that how you were looking at it in your mind, or was it, uh, or was it broader than that? And 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 how did you kind of think about relevance culturally?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, in terms of. The business and the marketing strategy because we were going after penetration we did need to appeal to everybody so it was about getting lots of people into the brand but from a communications perspective because we were fighting against this terrible metaphor of the you know much older out of touch uh, male figure um, and actually, that's something that, you know, the colonel in the wrong hands could represent. We went the exact opposite, just to kind of counterbalance it in the early days. So our fictional person that we were appealing to definitely was a young um, British person. We specifically used a female voiceover, for example, um, to, to be the exact opposite of what we were fighting against. Um, and and we definitely talked about a youthful energy, if not a youth focused target. So we were talking to everybody, and we felt we could get a tone and a way of advertising that would appeal, you know, a, as much to a fifty year old as it would to an eighteen year old. But that kind of younger energy was definitely what we needed to inject in.
0: So you, when you when you um, so you you guys develop a, a campaign, can you tell us about? Um, can you tell? And I believe Missy. Was the uh, was the first sort of uh, concept out of the gate? Can you can you tell us about what Missy represented, and particularly in terms of which is a constant theme throughout each of the phases that we're going to talk about today? Which is which is the idea of breaking sort of con- uh, conventions or conventional approaches to marketing. You guys sort of shuck it up from the get go, and I think you've done it every way, every phase that we're going to talk about today. So tell us about what what Missy represented.
1: The first rule, I think, um, in marketing at KFC is you don't put chickens on TV. So, you know, a big part of, you know, what I'd always say is we need to know what the rules are, but then be willing to break them if we have a really good reason to. And I think here we we absolutely did because um, going back to that, That research that Nessa spoke about, that kind of foundational piece that really helped us understand this relevance issue, one of the anxieties that really was holding us back, that was tethering us to this old world of fast food, um, was a mistrust of the chicken. Um, Like People didn't understand um, where our chickens came from. And in that void of information, they just assumed the worst and actually, every time we speak to consumers and customers about our chicken, our, our welfare, um, they're always pleasantly surprised, but they just don't engage in the conversation. So our intention here was was to disrupt and to start a conversation about our our chickens. And the campaign um, ostensibly was fairly simple. We had a chicken on TV or several chickens dancing to DMX um, and finish with the line the chicken the whole chicken and nothing but the chicken
2: Please, the only thing you can't was came out to play stay out my way
1: <laughs> and behind that support it with a lot of um, educational material about you know our position and where we are on chicken welfare and I think that you know, there's definitely learnings that we Kind of with the benefit of hindsight, we look back on that that piece of work with. But the one thing that I would say is that it absolutely um, started the right conversation, the conversation we wanted to start, which was all about all about the fact that KFC serve real chickens.
2: The backstory I guess is that um we we had we we knew this rule about not showing live chickens and mother being mother are always keen to bake rules, but especially with a client that tells us, you know, there are no rules, start again. And we threw it in the, in at the end of the pitch presentation, expecting in the uh, meeting for them to be appalled um, and to tell us we're absolutely not doing that. And it was a bit of a wild card. But I think that was one of the reasons we won the business, because we had a client that wanted to be challenged, that wanted to take risks, and that wanted to surprise people and get people's attention. Um, because they, they'd had messaging in the past many times explaining that KFC is freshly hand-bredded day and it had just been wallpaper. It had never cut through. Um, so th- this was a sign from them that they wanted to do things differently.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the way uh, Wendy's here in the US has always sort of championed the idea of fresh, never frozen. And I think that sort of was going to come up a little bit later in this conversation too, because that's really a distinction that that not only played well with, we assume with Missy, but also when we talked later about what happened uh, with the chicken supply chain, that you were able to sort of take that, that negative situation and spin it in a way that made sense, that you were able to say that the reason that we're having challenges with the supply chain was because you actually was a demonstration and proof point that you were dealing with fresh chicken never frozen so Jack when when we when we talk about sort of the extension of that first spot um, when that campaign ran that was I'm assuming that was out of the gate in 2016 what uh, or maybe maybe a little later but uh, was that sort of a single spot that sort of launched this uh, this sort of goal for relevance or were there some that followed before we uh, before we move on to chicken crisis
1: so it the Missy spot was absolutely the um, kind of that launch moment. I think in in two ways. So one is it marked the beginning of our relationship with Mother um, and pushing where we were going with our with our creative direction um, and a real shift, which then permeated across the the whole business and actually renewed energy. What we were able to do with with that work was actually represent the brand that everyone who was already working in the brand already knew us to be, but that we hadn't just been able to outwardly show that sort of swagger, that confidence, that attitude that we were able to launch there in a TV spot allowed us to, um, to really galvanize the business.
0: So with with that, did you then begin to see some of your growth metrics head in a positive direction? Uh, were you seeing positive impact from that work, Jack?
1: Um, I mean, so shifting overall equity measures takes time. So um, we had some positive kind of lead indicators coming out of the work. Um, A huge amount of um, brand buzz and conversation, some of that positively attributed, some of that negatively attributed. But I think the one thing that we can say is like KFC had made its mark. um, And that was something that we were able to build from. People were taking notice of us again.
0: We skip forward now to February 16th, 2018. Um, what happens, uh, Jack, on that uh, day in history, recent history?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna roll you back two days, Burger. So on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. Oh my God. we, yeah. sw- <laughs> we sw- <laughs> it was. It was a Valentine's Day to remember. Yeah. So on the 14th, we switched distributors. Um, So in our supply chain, basically, uh, the guys who are bringing all of the um, products uh, into our restaurant, um, we moved from one organization to another. Um, And fast forward two days to the 16th. By that point, we had what was a and has been a well-reported systematic failure in that distribution switchover. It happened almost immediately and within days led to us shutting down 800 of our then 950 restaurants because we couldn't get the food that we needed to be delivered to those restaurants in time it was it was frankly as simple and as devastating as that
2: the chicken shortage which has forced KFC to close hundreds of its outlets in the UK is our next story the fast food giant blaming teething problems with a new delivery contract for stopping fresh chicken getting to its
1: restaurants.
0: Uh, these are not corporate-owned stores. These are franchisees who own most of the stores. Is that fair to say?
1: That's absolutely right. So um, the majority of our of our restaurant base is owned by franchisees. Um, um, I mean, as you can imagine, like as a as a retail business, closing one store can be fairly material. So shutting down 80% of our state closing the doors on 800 restaurants per period, however short, is nothing short of catastrophic.
0: So how long, Jack, how long did the closure last? Just for context before we dig a little deeper into it.
1: So restaurant closures, so i say at at some point over the course of that period, we were trading restaurants. So at the the most significant period of closure, we had shut down 80% of our state. Uh, and that was for um for, for a matter of days um, but it took us time to get back to 100% of the estate being able to open and trade again so although that kind of period of intense closure was was relatively small um, the challenges associated with distribution and the impact on restaurants went on for much much longer we're talking about less than 2 weeks here of like an intense period of of closure and then a significant lag after that as well. So you
0: guys, you you guys could have sort of put your head in the sands. I mean, you didn't really, or you could have kept kept your head down, not in the sands, but kept your head down. Um, but you probably didn't know at that time that you were really dealing with a two week issue rather than a a two month issue. But you, um, I can you talk us through a little bit about what you guys did. Nessa, uh, originally, you you the word gets out. Um, there's what do you guys immediately begin to do in working with Jack and his team?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's funny that your head went to maybe this would last month. We assumed it would be over in days, and our biggest concern was we had a shoot planned for another campaign, and we couldn't get chicken onto the set. And we thought it was a little bump in the road, and it would go away. Um, it soon became clear to us that it was much more serious, and that there was going to be restaurants clo- closing everywhere. So we had a kind of we had two work streams. We had how do we deal with this crisis right now in the moment and not hide away and say something to our customers, while also in parallel replanning the the upcoming months because we had a, a ton of work in the making that we had to immediately cancel and then decide you know how we're we going to um, work out a roadmap for recovery instead. So in the immediate term. Um, we knew we wanted to say something to customers and we wanted to be as open as possible. And the strategy team started doing a big deep dive into how other businesses have dealt with crises before um, to figure out how best to do it and also how not to do it because most of them get it so wrong and you know, are tone deaf or too corporate or like you said, they just hide away and say nothing until it blows over. Um, and we came up with this model that is, is is pretty simple, actually. We call it the three H's and it was just r- rules of engagement. And it was be honest. So tell people what happened and why it happened. Be humble. So accept the blame. Don't place it elsewhere and that would have been very easy for us to do because ultimately it wasn't KFC's fault it was a distributor's fault Um, and be human so so often we noticed in the apology communications they just sound like they're written by lawyers or by a marketing team that is really really frightened of making a bad situation worse and that would have been very easy for us to do um, but we didn't think it would have any effect on people and it certainly wouldn't turn around this massive tide of media coverage around the crisis because At the moment, people in the media thought it was hilarious that a chicken restaurant had run out of chicken. But quite quickly, they were getting a bit annoyed and we were seeing complaints and grumbling and we could anticipate the tide turning against us. Um, So that was the brief into the creative team to come up with something in the short term and to communicate to people.
0: So Jack, uh, as a marketing director at this particular time on this brand in this moment, I think a lot of other marketing directors could learn a lot from what you were thinking and and feeling uh, because you're getting pressure from every side uh, and i assume you may not have had a background in crisis communications just talk us a little bit through what what was going on in your head during that time what what do you think the expectations of
1: the organization were on uh, for you when i think about the team who were running the day-to-day most of what we were doing was firefighting so um our our PR and social team were dealing with more inquiries over the course of a week than we'd had in the previous two years. Um, we were managing messaging and um, and conversation on social um, to try and kind of mitigate what, as Nessa described, was a potential turning of the tide against us. On day one, it was shocking. Day two, it was funny. By the time you get to day three, day four um, – this was beginning to get frustrating for our customers, and the impact of that on our team members was significant. It's
0: like the stages of grief, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely, and it was like that. I, mean, I can't, I can't probably overemphasize how how devastating it was being within the brand. So, whilst the external face of the distribution issue was this amusing and finally story. Um, that was covered um, covered on subsequent and consecutive days by the press. Uh, for for the business, it was it was genuinely material. It was genuinely devastating, and you know some of our franchise partners and suppliers were at risk. You know, genuinely at risk. Um, some of our team members didn't know if they would have jobs if restaurants were were going to close, um, and the the rug had just been pulled out from, from under us. So that was our context. The external context probably felt, well, definitely felt very different. There's three H's that Nessa speaks about. Um, actually staying human through that um, and recognizing that that our context isn't the context of our customers, of, of the world, was really, really important. And and was the reason why we were able to maintain our tone of voice that we were able to stay human through this because we were able to recognize that what was devastating to us was funny, um, or was mostly funny to the rest of the world, and therefore, um, by acknowledging that we could get our messaging out in the most relevant and um, an appropriate way. But that that was tough, right? Because, um, because internally, everyone is trying to manage a crisis, and whilst you're doing that. You know, like an amusing tweet is the furthest thing from from anyone's mind.
0: So, Nessa, when you look at where there, some of it was amusing, to some irony in the whole thing, and and um and I'm sort of curious about how the public was reacting to it. Were they blaming KFC in general? Were you, um, or was there a, was there a different tone that they were taking on it in general?
2: In general, it was still at the funny stage. So like you were joking about the stages of grief, we had mapped out the emotional stages of how people would react to this crisis Um, and in the media and on social media, because it got a lot of coverage on television stations, on news reports, on the BBC News, um, people still found it quite amusing. um, But we could see already, like Jack was saying, the frustrations of people who went local kfc and it still wasn't open and they didn't know when it was going to be open and then we could see some snideness coming into the the remarks as well why is it not open how hard is it to get your chicken together and so so we knew that people found it funny and that they loved the brand and it was the love of the brand that made them complain so much and you know that that made it headline news that people were upset that the restaurants were closed but that that love could easily be eroded. Um, And instead, we thought, actually, this is an opportunity. When is your brand in the spotlight? Um, And and when um, can you shine a light on how many people miss your brand when it's not there? It's a rare opportunity. And that's why at Mother, we started thinking, wow, not only could we do something to help and to try and make the situation a little better, but actually, this could be an amazing moment for the brand that could leave it stronger than before potentially.
0: Yeah, this is the big thing that I think most people uh don't they can't see the forest for the trees when they're in the crisis and it's an it's an understandable natural reaction, but it's it's the it's not recognizing the fact that a crisis is or can be an opportunity to build your brand and, and not just to defend it. I think the the uh, the instinctive reaction is I got to defend, I got to I've got to react, I've got to react rather than being proactive. And and I think your first step in this was sort of an apology. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that started out, Nessa? And then I'd love to get Jack to talk about how we reacted to the concept or how internally they reacted to it, particularly when there's so much tension going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, it was done really quickly. So we all, you know, we could see all of our clients dealing with a really terrible disaster for their business. And we did want to help. So we got a brief in immediately into the creative department. And we we, it was an open brief to the whole agency. So we had a ton of teams coming with great ideas. And it was a very simple brief to apologize and, you know, open the door to people so they could see what was happening. And some people brought back great stuff. You know, we had ideas for live television shows and podcasts, and it was all very complex. And um, one of our creative directors came up with this very simple print ad and using the bucket. And there were actually a few different versions of the language that he was playing around with. And then he started looking at acronyms. We had an email chain that evening where we were sending versions back and forth. And then when we when we hit on FCK, it, it just felt perfect. And that was it. Straight down to design, straight over to the clients to see what they thought. Um, and it, it just felt to us if you balanced something really funny um, with something very true and honest and earnest and unapologetic, that it would strike just the right note with the British public.
0: For those who don't know, you basically just reorganize the letters within the logo. Can you kind of describe what that means? It's it's on the it's the the primary visual is how you adjusted the logo and reorganized the logo on the bucket, right?
2: So it's, I mean, it it could not be a more simple print ad. It's their <laughs> iconic bucket, and instead of KFC it's an anagram, FCK, which for your listeners, I'm I'm sure you know what that curse word is. (laughs) Um, We actually had to do, because um, curse words are often received differently in different cultures. In in British culture, there's a a lot more receptivity to curse words than say in American culture. I had to do an analysis for Meg, um, the CMO at the time, um, explaining (laughs) how people would react well in this country in a way that they might not in head office. Um, and the, the bucket was empty of chicken. There was a few lone crumbs. And it, it kind of made the point very clearly, we've messed up. And then underneath we had, we're sorry. And then we had a longer, long copy ad explaining exactly what had happened. And we had a lot of debate over really small things to craft this. So originally the we're sorry was part of the body text. And then we pulled it out and had it separate so that it really you know had space to breathe and people understood. Um, And and then we crafted the exact wording of the copy so that we were being honest and humble and and human in it all.
0: So it all went through the filter of the three H's that you talked about, as you just stated, uh, honesty, humility, humor. And then it goes internally, Jack. Um, I can only imagine that sort of uh, tension that's going on. This concept comes over. uh, What's the initial reaction?
1: I think it depends uh, the answer to that question probably lies in who you ask, at what point, and uh, and uh, what their what their chosen recollection is at that at that juncture. What I'd probably say, by way of initial context, is whenever you're in these situations, there's always. I mean, you mentioned it, Fergus, There's always a a bias towards um, managing risk rather than seeing the opportunity. Um, and with a print ad like this, it's fraught with risk. So. Firstly, um, actually, before you even get to um, changing the brand wordmark into a curse word, the first one is that we're apologizing. And this is so early in the process um, that legally we are trying to work out um, kind of like where's the contract with the distributor? Where does blame sit? What's the, um, what's the opportunity to? Reach settlements and decisions around that, and as you can imagine, us apologising publicly um, could be viewed as an admission of KFC's culpability. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so the first conversation is actually around: can we even apologise? Um, and um, and so this kind of like balance between what feels really natural and authentic and human on the one side with all of those layers that you come, come up against when you are trying to manage a really complex situation at pace. A GM was fully supportive. Um, and Meg, our CMO, stood there and was ready to take the fire if it didn't work. And I think ultimately, it's that sort of leadership that allows for calculated risks like this to be taken.
0: So, Nessa, you you start off with as I mentioned earlier, there was four phases to your sort of comeback plan overall, or the the re, the uh, the plan coming out of this. Uh, one was the shock, which was the apology. Um, the next one you guys talk about. Uh, well, there's four of them. One is the shock. One is the slump. One is the comeback, and last one is the resurgence. So we've talked about the shock, which is the apology that we just talked about here what was the slump at what point did you trigger the slump and what was it based on
2: yeah i think jack alluded to it earlier but the the path to recovery was not an automatic switching on of all the restaurants and and for them to be all working perfectly again so we knew once we opened our doors there would still be lags in the restaurants having all the supplies they needed um and that was going to be patchy service for people, which was a terrible place to be because we would have this big reopening, people would be excited to come back into KFC and then the experience wouldn't be what they were expecting and it wouldn't meet their high standards. Um, so this was a period we were, you know, again, trying to navigate through by being completely transparent and letting people know exactly what was happening and letting them know that we were only partially open and that not everything was back yet. And we were trying our hardest and we were working our quickest, but we wanted to open the doors and get them chicken again as soon as possible. Um, because the danger was that people would be really excited. There'd been all this brand love, all these fan flames, um, and and then you know th- they would be disappointed on return. So that that was the slump phase, and it was a really tricky tricky phase to navigate through from a communication perspective.
0: Yeah, I love. I wanted to read. I, we'll put it up on the on the episodes page also. But uh, one of the I'm not sure what environment this was. Says, I'm not sure if it was a print ad or if it was a social post. But it says that it's from you guys. It says some chickens have now crossed the road. The rest are waiting at the Pelican Crossing. I mean, I mean, this continuation to the use, the use of sort of lighthearted uh, humor just seems to continue to permeate through the work. I mentioned that there were two other phases. Uh, the third phase is the comeback, and the fourth phase is, is uh, the resurgence. But given that we've got limited time today and we've got a lot to cover, we'll have to leave those for another time. We're going to switch now to, uh, we're going to maybe skip. Uh, six months to a year but another another great example where you were able to sort of apply sort of uh, convention breaking thinking uh, in a situation that that emerged around fries Um, it was in 2019 that the brand decided to to introduce new fries right these were sort of uh, chunkier crispier fries and I believe that they had tested really well in research a- among both uh, potential uh, new customers and among uh, existing customers. But things started to change uh, in terms of what began to uh, happen in social. Can you tell us about what was, what was uh, the reaction to um, the introduction of the upcoming introduction of new fries and what the situation was, what happened?
1: I was innovation director at the time, um, and the one thing that everyone had been complaining about was our old fries. So they're our biggest dissatisfier. Um, Everyone loved our chicken, but to some extent we're tolerating the fries. So we went about changing them, and we did tons and tons of consumer research. And we found this new, thicker, skin-on-chip, and it significantly outperformed the old ones in every single consumer preference test that we've done. so you'd think that the job was going to be easy. It wasn't because we then came to test it in restaurant. So we'd done these big consumer studies, um, huge sample size, but always in test conditions, never in restaurant. Then we tested in restaurant and we began to see that people were complaining or confused or asking for the old ones back. Um, now, we knew that the new ones were better. They'd been proven better in all of this research. So we started to dig deeper into why it wasn't performing so well in restaurants. So we did some qualitative research there. And actually, we heard from, from a lot of those consumers that they they did like the fries, but they were just confused and they weren't aware that they'd changed. And there was this, this sort of general, like this predisposition to not liking something that was new. Um, And that's what we found. So that's where we were before we kind of entered into the briefing and the process with Mother.
0: So Nessa, what what was your interpretation of the ask for uh, for the agency?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think once you've identified the challenge, the ask becomes quite simple because if you're trying to make people feel good about the change, you have to make them feel bad about what they have right now. There has to be something unsatisfactory about the status quo. Um, and again, it's one of those things that sounds really obvious after the fact, when you've done the campaign, it wasn't immediately obvious when we were developing the strategy, because there is an answer to this that just says, our fries are amazing. Try our new fries, money back guarantee. <laughs> Not right. that we would ever do that. But, you know, most brands will probably just lean into their strengths and explain why they're much better fries or have some kind of a taste test or something, Um but we felt that one, that, that wouldn't be particularly effective because often campaigns that talk about new and improved uh, recipes, people feel a bit funny about, um, but also it wouldn't solve that problem of the existing people that thought they, they really like the old fries. And we thought we could charm them into feeling otherwise, or at least be open to considering an alternative because we said it in the right way. Um, So that's where we decided, let's be radically honest, let's flaunt our flaws and let's do something kind of humorous and intriguing enough that it gets people interested in the new fries, genuinely interested.
0: You've gone through the chicken crisis, uh, lots of lessons learned there, and then you're you're moving into the French fries, anticipating a potential uh, reaction in order to not create a sort of negative reaction or you decide to use the negative reaction. So tell us about what that is, and we'll explain what that means better in a second.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we were inspired by some other campaigns we'd seen at the time that had done quite counterintuitive advertising. So people like REI and their Black Friday campaign telling people not to buy them, or Patagonia had opened a secondhand store on eBay that seemed a bit puzzling to people at first. Um, And we thought there was something really interesting about um, provoking people to, um, wonder what you were doing. So we found some tweets of people that hated our fries. Um, and in, in kind of a stealthy way, we chose one of them and we promoted it. So we put money behind it. Um, and we weren't sure if anyone would notice it was, it was organic. Um, you know, we didn't draw people's attention to it, but of course they did notice um some people thinking it was a mistake like we had misspent our money some people just thinking it was a weird pivot and then we put it on um out of home as well which just you know made it an even bigger thing and, and by then people were starting to twig that something was going on um because why would we be doing this and then after that we were able to follow up with introducing our new fries and kind of circle the whole story around and people by then thought it was very funny and clever and could see what we were doing in promoting the negativity toward their old fries before coming in with the solution of our new new
0: fries. See, this is the brilliance of this. And I'll post this on the site too. I want to read this out. This is an outdoor, it looks like a bus shelter or, or phone booth. And and the, um, the ad says, Dear KFC, no one likes your fries. Yours sincerely the entire world i mean come on that is it the the balls to do that uh jack w- what what was going on i mean it, it's totally in in the spirit of the new brand uh it's humble it's human it, it's uh, it uses humor um but man that is a, that that's a, a strength of client to approve that what what was what was the thinking internally
1: well i mean first, firstly to say folks that's like all of the tweets that we use, and that's the one that we put on out of home, that's absolutely genuine. Like that existed in the world. We didn't have to look far to find it. Um, and there were some, some genuinely funny and creative ways of criticizing our fries. And I think, you know, we, you know, it's not often that you actually trawl through social media or have you know agency trawl through social media to share the most kind of creative and ingenious ways of, of slating your brand yeah. and then uh, and then see that in a creative review I mean my absolute favorite was um uh, KFC, how do you cook your fries is it in a warm cupboard um, <laughs> in some respects although there's there's an element of, of risk and there's you know there's definitely some kind of courage associated with it. We were we were criticizing a product that we were going to be exiting. so um, we were replacing it with something new and better. so actually playing to that loss aversion, acknowledging that what was there before wasn't as good as it could be. Um, actually just made perfect strategic sense. So I, I wanted to just
0: to, to sort of dwell for a couple of seconds on loss aversion, because I think it's pretty critical, as you say, Jack, in, in understanding the context of this. So so Nessa, the, the idea here was that you were trying to diffuse loss aversion uh, before it happened by shifting the voice almost, Nessa, from it's other people t- setting up the challenge. And then, uh, so once the fries are introduced, they're more open to considering the fact that the change is a good change. Am I I explaining that well at all?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've you've put it in a really interesting way by saying we let other people do the talking. Because I think if KFC had come in and said, we think our fries need to be improved, here are the new ones. Again, you're opening the door for existing customers to say, well, we prefer the old fries and... You know, there's another scenario where this ended up as some kind of a war between new fries and old fries, and you know, many brands. We think of like new Coke. Yeah. Many brands have, have fallen foul of this before, where they didn't think enough about the anticipated rejection of a new product, assumed it was better because it did well in taste tests, and and didn't think about the psychology of how people would feel. Um, so, you know, we'd seen enough of those case studies to know, and we'd seen it in the restaurant research to know that was a real issue and not one to be taken lightly. Um, so we headed it off at the pass by by you know asking other other customers who were telling us they wanted new fries to do the persuading.
0: Yeah, and just just for for clarity to the listener, when we talk about these headlines that will be read out earlier, these were part of an ad that was introducing new fries. So at the bottom of the ad it says new fries coming soon. So there was the, the the loop was closed at the bottom. So how how did it work, Jack, in terms of the introduction of the fries? Before we move on to our third and final phase
1: so um so around the campaign we introduced the new fries and the groundswell of kind of conversation around the new fries launch surpassed all levels of expectation i think that at one point we were trending um well we definitely were trending on twitter i don't know if we hit one but we were number two and actually it led to some pickup by some food programming so we ended up going on some um, Relatively um, large viewership um, food shows to actually talk about the process and the change. So the level of kind of communication we were able to give about the fact that the fries had changed, which was ultimately our objective, um, which was just for people to be primed, to people to be aware that a change had happened, to feel some general sense of positivity towards that change, and then not be surprised and not be taken aback, and then just make their own judgement. So when we
0: when we look back on before we go into the final uh, final conversation around the pandemic, um, I wanted to sort of recap the fact that in each of these phases, right back to 2016 with Missy, then to the reaction to the chicken crisis with FCK, then to the fries and this idea of of uh, loss aversion, In each of these cases, there's been this breaking of convention every time. So there's this common theme that's gone across all of this marketing and all of these tactics that makes sense. And so we're now going to go from 2019, which was when Fry's was introduced, uh, to the final uh, stage, which was massive. And I think that this, of course, being the pandemic. So we enter into 2020. You guys um, have now had some experience with dealing with crisis so you've got uh you've got a and a closure of the entire franchise and you've got experience with that but 2020 hits and what's the re, what's the challenge you're facing Nessa?
2: I guess once again we were in a situation where our restaurants had to close and where there was a huge amount of uncertainty as to when we could trade again what was going to happen to the franchisees? How were our customers feeling? Um, but it was also the first time, and you, you spoke about it earlier. KFC as a brand um, has always been a brand built on local marketing and you know getting the best local execution for each market. This was the first time that all markets had been in a similar cultural context at the same time. So it was a very unique um, situation. And again, once again, this is. Um, something that we come back to time and again when we're in a moment of crisis we're looking at it going how could we make this into a potential moment of advantage you know where where could we lean in to try and help the brand or the business be stronger either in the recovery phase um or in the year afterwards so that this was one of those moments
0: there had been a uh, a campaign developed which was leveraging the decades old sort of um tagline or strap line for the brand which is uh, finger licking good so when the pandemic hits uh, jack you have this campaign in market and of course the last thing people should be doing in the pandemic and this pandemic was licking their fingers so this 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 had to stop
1: naturally it wasn't appropriate for us to be um you know the timing wasn't right it was absolutely off culture and one of the things we we are Painfully aware of is is how we're showing up in culture and being um, astute and having high EQ and really you know being tapped into what's going on and so for us it was it was a no-brainer that it wasn't the right time to be running that piece of work uh, and we made a decision quickly to to pause it um, but it didn't make it any any easier in regards to kind of how uh, how we felt that decision.
0: A lot of brands at that time were doing pretty traditional expected, expected things. And they weren't wrong. Some of them were fantastic in in the way that many of them reacted. Uh, So you had choices. You could stay dark or you could get back in, plug back into what was happening. But I got, I expect you had to find sort of the KFC mother way of doing it. Right.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting what Jack is saying about us always being culturally aware. And I think, reading the room is something we're very aware of in KFC and trying to assess the mood of how people are thinking. Uh, we we had been running, a, as soon as the pandemic hit, we set up a panel at Mother and um, kind of qual and quant research. And it was just trying to get a sense of how people were feeling, what they were thinking, and also how that was changing as the pandemic went on, because it, it felt like It was on this roller coaster. People were up and down. They were super worried and fearful. And then they were bored and they wanted, you know, some levity. And it felt like some of the communications that were coming out were just missing the mood by coming too late or striking the wrong tone. Um, and, And we thought that we wanted to talk to people, but we wanted to make sure that it, you know, hit on the right note at exactly the right time. So we were using research across many countries to get a sense of you know what would unite people and, and how we might be able to shape a campaign therefore.
1: It didn't feel necessarily appropriate for us to be commenting on the state of the nation. That's not who we are. Um, so we felt that it would be absolutely incoherent for us to start putting messages out there along the lines of, we're all in this together, even though we're apart or whatever it might be, um, which is probably right for some brands, but not for us. Um, but COVID was the context. Uh, and we didn't, you know, we weren't ignoring that. Um, clearly, it's serious, but that doesn't mean that everything has to be serious. When we reopened the delivery, we wanted to be kind of tongue in cheek, to be humorous, and above all else, to to be human.
0: So, Nessa, what's what's the brief to creative, and th- the solution is genius. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to say it's simple, but it's actually genius. Tell us about what happened.
2: So for the globe for the global campaign and I think it is one of those campaigns where when people and when we look on it afterwards it seems obvious you know we had to pull a campaign in the UK because our our end line was inappropriate and all about finger licking. and now we have a global brief with the same context, obviously we should do something with our end line, but it wasn't that obvious at the start. And actually, before we briefed into creatives, we had thought about going down different routes. Should we use the kernel? You know, is it one of those moments where he speaks to people? Um, But in the end, because there was so much tension around it, because there was so much discomfort around the end line and what it meant and when we'd be able to bring it back in the UK, for us as strategists, we felt there must be power in that. Um, so the the brief to the creatives was don't hide our inappropriate end line, lean into it and own it, in some way. Um, and, and the executions that came back were incredibly simple and and perfect for a global market because we were able to craft it in a, a million different ways um, across you know different media channels, but also across different countries with different execution budgets. And the core of the idea. Was just about blurring out the finger licking part of the end line, and and that itself was the big idea that caught all the headlines and caught people's imagination, um, and and you know created um, a, a really light, playful, enjoyable moment for people in the height of you know a really terrible year.
0: So the original line, of course, is "it's finger licking good." So you've 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 now taken out you've taken out the term finger and licking. So it's now it's blank blank good. Yeah. and But then you take that opportunity to insert some language in to replace finger licking. Tell us about some of those executions, which began to really lean in on quality too.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we once we had done that and that got a huge amount of potential and, and press coverage, we then wanted to extend the campaign. So we had a couple of different phases. Um, the first phase was um, allowing customers on social media to suggest replacement end lines and they had a huge amount of fun um, thinking of, you know, different lines and putting different words into the line. Um, and then the next phase, the more recent one, um, we call borrowed endlines. We we noticed that um, when we were playing around with executions, that so many other brands have endlines that work perfectly with KFC. Um, you know, KFC gives you wings. KFC, the best man can get. And we thought that was really funny and um, would be a really, you know, again playful way to extend the campaign. So. We chose a number of those and we created an advertising campaign around it. And then we also allowed people to suggest other brands. And then we kind of mocked them up very quickly and sent them out. So those campaigns were mainly socially driven and PR driven, although we did have some above the line supporting them as well, which again, kind of added added to the fun and, and made it feel like a bigger campaign.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's super smart. And I think the buzz value is extraordinary. I'm just curious for you, Jack, What did you, when you look back on this body of activity over the last five years, uh, what do you think marketers can learn from what you guys went through?
1: Firstly, it's about knowing who you are and knowing and ensuring that everyone in the business knows it too. Um, And then being that, sticking to it and being consistent and persistent. Um, So that'd be the first one. I think secondly... Um, That great work and brave creative doesn't come out of fear it comes when people feel trusted when they feel listened to where the relationship between client and agency is partnership where the people like where people internally are able to share ideas to provoke to prod to come back and challenge a no and ask again um and and that actually it's that culture that breeds great
0: work. The work is great. And I think that if, um, if all agency client relationships could get to this point, I think that marketing could be more effective on many, many levels. So thanks to both of you for being a part of this. Nessa McGinnis, the strategy director at Mother London and Jack uh, Hinchliffe is uh, marketing lead at KFC for UK and Ireland. Thank you both for investing all of this time talking with us today. Oh,
2: my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Greg. It's my pleasure. A really, really great conversation. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.